section four of twilight in italy by d h lawrence this librivox recording is in the public domain on the lago di garda the theatre during carnival a company is playing in the theatre on christmas day the padrone came in with the key of his box and would we care to see the drama the theatre was small a mere nothing in fact a mere affair of peasants you understand and the signor di paoli spread his hands and put his head on one side parrot-wise but we might find a little diversion un peu de divertiment with this he handed me the key i made suitable acknowledgments and was really impressed to be handed the key of a box at the theatre so simply and pleasantly in the large sitting-room looking over the grey lake of christmas day it seemed to me a very graceful event the key had a chain and a little shield of bronze on which was beaten out a large figure eight so the next day we went to see ispetri expecting some good crude melodrama the theatre is an old church since that triumph of the deaf and dumb the cinematograph has come to give us the nervous excitement of speed grimace agitation and speed as of flying atoms chaos many an old church in italy has taken a new lease of life this cast-off church made a good theatre i realized how cleverly it had been constructed for the dramatic presentation of religious ceremonies the east end is round the walls are windowless sound is well distributed now everything is theatrical except the stone floor and two pillars at the back of the auditorium and the slightly ecclesiastical seats below there are two tiers of little boxes in the theatre some forty in all with fringe and red velvet and lined with dark red paper quite like real boxes in a real theatre and the padrones is one of the best it just holds three people we paid our threepence entrance fee in the stone hall and went upstairs i opened the door of number eight and we were shut in our little cabin looking down on the world then i found the barber luigi bowing profusely in a box opposite it was necessary to make bows all round ah the chemist on the upper tier near the barber how do you do to the padrona of the hotel who is our good friend and who sits wearing a little beaver shoulder cape a few boxes off very cold salutation to the stout village magistrate with the long brown beard who leans forward in the box facing the stage while a grouping of faces look out from behind him a warm smile to the family of the signora gemma across next to the stage then we are settled I cannot tell why I hate the village magistrate. He looks like a family portrait by a Flemish artist, he himself weighing down the front of the picture with his portliness and his long brown beard, whilst the faces of his family are arranged in two groups for the background. I think he is angry at our intrusion. He is very republican and self-important. But we eclipse him easily, with the aid of a large black velvet hat and black furs and our Sunday clothes downstairs the villagers are crowding drifting like a heavy current the women are seated by church instinct all together on the left with perhaps an odd man at the end of a row beside his wife on the right sprawling in the benches are several groups of bersaglieri in grey uniforms and slanting cock's feather hats then peasants fishermen and an odd couple or so of brazen girls taking their places on the men's side at the back lounging against the pillars or standing very dark and sombre are the more reckless spirits of the village their black felt hats are pulled down their cloaks are thrown over their mouths 
they stand very dark and isolated in their moments of stillness they shout and wave to each other when anything occurs the men are clean their clothes are all clean washed the rags of the poorest porter are always well washed but it is sunday tomorrow and they are shaved only on a sunday so that they have a week's black growth on their chins but they have dark soft eyes unconscious and vulnerable they move and balance with loose heedless motion upon their clattering zoccoli they lounge with wonderful ease against the wall at the back or against the two pillars unconscious of the patches on their clothes or of their bare throats that are knotted perhaps with a scarlet rag loose and abandoned they lounge and talk or they watch with wistful absorption the play that is going on they are strangely isolated in their own atmosphere and as if revealed it is as if their vulnerable being was exposed and they have not the wit to cover it there is a pathos of physical sensibility and mental inadequacy their mind is not sufficiently alert to run with their quick warm senses the men keep together as if to support each other the women also are together in a hard strong herd it is as if the power the hardness the triumph even in this italian village were with the women in their relentless vindictive unity that which drives men and women together the indomitable necessity is like a bondage upon the people they submit as under compulsion under constraint they come together mostly in anger and in violence of destructive passion there is no comradeship between men and women none whatsoever but rather a condition of battle reserve hostility on sundays the uncomfortable excited unwilling youth walks for an hour with his sweetheart at a little distance from her on the public highway in the afternoon this is a concession to the necessity for marriage there is no real courting no happiness of being together only the roused excitement which is based on a fundamental hostility there is very little flirting and what there is is of the subtle cruel kind like a sex duel on the whole the men and women avoid each other almost shun each other husband and wife are brought together in a child which they both worship but in each of them there is only the great reverence for the infant and the reverence for fatherhood or motherhood as the case may be there is no spiritual love in marriage husband and wife wage the subtle satisfying war of sex upon each other it gives a profound satisfaction a profound intimacy but it destroys all joy all unanimity in action on sunday afternoons the uncomfortable youth walks by the side of his maiden for an hour in the public highway then he escapes as from a bondage he goes back to his men companions on sunday afternoons and evenings the married woman accompanied by a friend or by a child she dare not go alone afraid of the strange terrible sex war between her and the drunken man is seen leading home the wine-drunken liberated husband sometimes she is beaten when she gets home it is part of the process but there is no synthetic love between men and women there is only passion and passion is fundamental hatred the act of love is a fight the child the outcome is divine here the union the oneness is manifest though spirit strove with spirit in mortal conflict during the sex passion yet the flesh united with flesh in oneness the phallus is still divine but the spirit the mind of man this has become nothing so the women triumph they sit down below in the theatre their perfectly dressed hair gleaming their backs very straight their heads carried tensely they are not very noticeable 
they seem held in reserve they are just as tense and stiff as the men are slack and abandoned some strange will holds the women taut they seem like weapons dangerous there is nothing charming nor winning about them at the best a full prolific maternity at the worst a yellow poisonous bitterness of the flesh that is like a narcotic but they are too strong for the men the male spirit which would subdue the immediate flesh to some conscious or social purpose is overthrown the woman in her maternity is the lawgiver the supreme authority the authority of the man in work in public affairs is something trivial in comparison the pathetic ignominy of the village male is complete on sunday afternoon on his great day of liberation when he is accompanied home drunk but sinister by the erect unswerving slightly cowed woman his drunken terrorizing is only pitiable she is so obviously the more constant power and this is why the men must go away to america it is not the money it is the profound desire to rehabilitate themselves to recover some dignity as men as producers as workers as creators from the spirit not only from the flesh it is a profound desire to get away from women altogether the terrible subjugation to sex the phallic worship the company of actors in the little theatre was from a small town away on the plain beyond brescia the curtain rose everybody was still with that profound naive attention which children give and after a few minutes i realized that ispetri was ibsen's ghosts the peasants and fishermen of the garda even the rows of ungovernable children sat absorbed in watching as the norwegian drama unfolded itself the actors are peasants the leader is the son of a peasant proprietor he is qualified as a chemist but is unsettled vagrant prefers play-acting the signor pietro di paoli shrugs his shoulders and apologizes for their vulgar accent it is all the same to me I am trying to get myself to rights with the play which i have just lately seen in munich perfectly produced and detestable it was such a change from the hard ethical slightly mechanized characters in the german play which was as perfect an interpretation as i can imagine to the rather pathetic notion of the italian peasants that i had to wait to adjust myself the mother was a pleasant comfortable woman harassed by something she did not quite know what the pastor was a ginger-haired caricature imitated from the northern stage quite a lay figure the peasants never laughed they watched solemnly and absorbedly like children the servant was just a slim pert forward hussy much too flagrant and then the son the actor-manager he was a dark ruddy man broad and thick-set evidently of peasant origin but with some education now he was the important figure the play was his and he was strangely disturbing dark ruddy and powerful he could not be the blighted son of ghosts the hectic unsound northern issue of a diseased father his flashy italian passion for his half-sister was real enough to make one uncomfortable something he wanted and would have in spite of his own soul something which fundamentally he did not want it was this contradiction within the man that made the play so interesting a robust vigorous man of thirty-eight flaunting and florid as a rather successful italian can be yet there was a secret sickness which oppressed him but it was no taint in the blood it was rather a kind of debility in the soul that which he wanted and would have the sensual excitement in his soul he did not want it no not at all and yet he must act from his physical desires his physical will his true being his real self was impotent in his soul he was dependent forlorn 
he was childish and dependent on the mother to hear him say grazia mamma would have tormented the mother soul in any woman living such a child crying in the night and for what for he was hot-blooded healthy almost in his prime and free as a man can be in his circumstances he had his own way he admitted no thwarting he governed his circumstances pretty much coming to our village with his little company playing the plays he chose himself and yet that which he would have he did not vitally want it was only a sort of inflamed obstinacy that made him so insistent in the masculine way he was not going to be governed by women he was not going to be dictated to in the least by any one and this because he was beaten by his own flesh his real man's soul the soul that goes forth and builds up a new world out of the void was ineffectual it could only revert to the senses his divinity was the phallic divinity the other male divinity which is the spirit that fulfills in the world the new germ of an idea this was denied and obscured in him unused and it was this spirit which cried out helplessly in him through the insistent inflammable flesh even this play-acting was a form of physical gratification for him it had in it neither real mind nor spirit it was so different from ibsen and so much more moving ibsen is exciting nervously sensational but this was really moving a real crying in the night one loved the italian nation and wanted to help it with all one's soul but when one sees the perfect ibsen how one hates the norwegian and swedish nations they are detestable they seem to be fingering with the mind the secret places and sources of the blood impertinent irreverent nasty there is a certain intolerable nastiness about the real ibsen the same thing is in strindberg and in most of the norwegian and swedish writings it is with them a sort of phallic worship also but now the worship is mental and perverted the phallus is the real fetish but it is the source of uncleanliness and corruption and death it is the moloch worshipped in obscenity which is unbearable the phallus is a symbol of creative divinity but it represents only part of creative divinity the italian has made it represent the whole which is now his misery for he has to destroy his symbol in himself which is why the italian men have the enthusiasm for war unashamed partly it is the true phallic worship for the phallic principle is to absorb and dominate all life but also it is a desire to expose themselves to death to no death that death may destroy in them this too strong dominion of the blood may once more liberate the spirit of outgoing of uniting of making order out of chaos in the outer world as the flesh makes a new order from chaos in begetting a new life set them free to know and serve a greater idea the peasants below sat and listened intently like children who hear and do not understand yet who are spellbound the children themselves sit spellbound on the benches till the play is over they do not fidget or lose interest they watch with wide absorbed eyes at the mystery held in thrall by the sound of emotion but the villagers do not really care for ibsen they let it go on the feast of epiphany as a special treat was given a poetic drama by d'annunzio la fiacola sotto in moggio the light under the bushel it is a foolish romantic play of no real significance but there are several murders and a good deal of artificial horror but it is all a very nice and romantic piece of make-believe like a charade so the audience loved it after the performance of ghosts i saw the barber 
and he had the curious grey clay look of an italian who is cold and depressed the sterile cold inertia which the so-called passionate nations know so well had settled on him and he went obliterating himself in the street as if he were cold dead but after the d'annunzio play he was like a man who has drunk sweet wine and is warm ah bellissimo bellissimo he said in tones of intoxicated reverence when he saw me better than ispetri i said he half raised his hands as if to imply the fatuity of the question ah but he said it was d'annunzio the other that was ibsen a great norwegian i said famous all over the world but you know d'annunzio is a poet oh beautiful beautiful there was no going beyond this bello bellissimo it was the language which did it it was the italian passion for rhetoric for the speech which appeals to the senses and makes no demand on the mind when an englishman listens to a speech he wants at least to imagine that he understands thoroughly and impersonally what is meant but an italian only cares about the emotion it is the movement the physical effect of the language upon the blood which gives him supreme satisfaction his mind is scarcely engaged at all he is like a child hearing and feeling without understanding it is the sensuous gratification he asks for which is why d'annunzio is a god in italy he can control the current of the blood with his words and although much of what he says is bosh yet his hearer is satisfied fulfilled carnival ends on the fifth of february so each thursday there is a serata d'onore of one of the actors the first and the only one for which prices were raised to a fourpence entrance fee instead of threepence was for the leading lady the play was the wife of the doctor a modern piece sufficiently uninteresting the farce that followed made me laugh since it was her evening of honor adelaida was the person to see she is very popular although she is no longer young in fact she is the mother of the young pert person of ghosts nevertheless adelaida stout and blonde and soft and pathetic is the real heroine of the theatre the prima she is very good at sobbing and afterwards the men exclaim involuntarily out of their strong emotion bella bella the women say nothing they sit stiffly and dangerously as ever but no doubt they quite agree this is the true picture of ill-used tear-stained woman the bearer of many wrongs therefore they take unto themselves the homage of the men's bella bella that follows the sobs it is due recognition of their hard wrongs the woman pays nevertheless they despise in their souls the plump soft adelaida dear adelaida she is irreproachable in every age in every clime she is dear at any rate to the masculine soul this soft tear-blenched blonde ill-used thing she must be ill-used and unfortunate dear gretchen dear desdemona dear iphigenia dear damo camellias dear lucy of lammermoor dear mary magdalene dear pathetic unfortunate soul in all ages and lands how we love you in the theatre she blossoms forth she is the lily of the stage young and inexperienced as i am i have broken my heart over her several times I could write a sonnet sequence to her yes the fair pale tear-stained thing white-robed with her hair down her back i could call her by a hundred names in a hundred languages melisande elizabeth juliet butterfly phedre minnehaha etc 
each new time i hear her voice with its faint clang of tears my heart grows big and hot and my bones melt i detest her but it is no good my heart begins to swell like a bud under the plangent rain the last time i saw her was here on the garda at salo she was the chalked thin-armed daughter of rigoletto i detested her her voice had a chalky squeak in it and yet by the end my heart was overripe in my breast ready to burst with loving affection i was ready to walk onto the stage to wipe out the odious miscreant lover and to offer her all myself saying i can see it is real love you want and you shall have it i will give it to you of course i know the secret of the gretchen magic it is all in the save me mr hercules phrase her shyness her timidity her trustfulness her tears foster my own strength and grandeur i am the positive half of the universe but so i am if it comes to that just as positive as the other half adelaida is plump and her voice has just that moist plangent strength which gives one a real voluptuous thrill the moment she comes on the stage and looks around a bit scared she is she electra isolde sieglinde marguerite she wears a dress of black voile like the lady who weeps at the trial in the police court this is her modern uniform her antique garment is of trailing white with a blonde pigtail and a flower realistically it is black voile and a handkerchief adelaida always has a handkerchief and still i cannot resist it i say there's the hanky nevertheless in two minutes it has worked its way with me she squeezes it in her poor plump hand as the tears begin to rise fate or man is inexorable so cruel there is a sob a cry she presses the fist and the hanky to her eyes one eye then the other she weeps real tears tears shaken from the depths of her soft vulnerable victimized female self i cannot stand it there i sit in the padrone's little red box and stifle my emotion whilst i repeat in my heart what a shame child what a shame she is twice my age but what is age in such circumstances your poor little hanky it's sopping there then don't cry it'll be all right i'll see you're all right all men are not beasts you know so i cover her protectively in my arms and soon i shall be kissing her for comfort in the heat and prowess of my compassion kissing her soft plump cheek and neck closely bringing my comfort nearer and nearer it is a pleasant and exciting role for me to play robert burns did the part to perfection o wert thou in the cold blast on yonder lee on yonder lee how many times does one recite that to all the ophelias and gretchens in the world thy beard should be my bosom how one admires one's bosom in that capacity looking down at one's shirt front one is filled with strength and pride why are the women so bad at playing this part in real life this ophelia gretchen role why are they so unwilling to go mad and die for our sakes they do it regularly on the stage but perhaps after all we write the plays what a villain i am what a black-browed passionate ruthless masculine villain i am to the leading lady on the stage and on the other hand dear heart what a hero what a fount of chivalrous generosity and faith i am anything but a dull and law-abiding citizen i am a galahad full of purity and spirituality i am the lancelot of valour and lust 
i fold my hands or i cock my hat in one side as the case may be i am myself only i am not a respectable citizen not that in this hour of my glory and my escape dear heaven how adelaida wept her voice plashing like violin music at my ruthless masculine cruelty dear heart how she sighed to rest on my sheltering bosom and how i enjoyed my dual nature how i admired myself adelaide chose la molie del dottore for her evening of honour during the following week came a little storm of coloured bills great evening of honour of enrico percevali this is the leader the actor manager what should he choose for his great occasion this broad thick-set ruddy descendant of the peasant proprietors of the plain no one knew the title of the play was not revealed so we were staying at home it was cold and wet but the maestra came inflammably on that thursday evening and were we not going to the theatre to see amleto poor maestra she is yellow and bitter-skinned near fifty but her dark eyes are still corrosively inflammable she was engaged to a lieutenant in the cavalry who got drowned when she was twenty-one since then she has hung on the tree unripe growing yellow and bitter-skinned never developing amleto i say non lo conosco a certain fear comes into her eyes she is schoolmistress and has a mortal dread of being wrong see si, she cries wavering appealing una drama inglese english i repeated yes an english drama how do you write it anxiously she gets a pencil from her reticule and with black-gloved scrupulousness writes amleto hamlet i exclaim wonderingly ecco amleto cries the maestra her eyes aflame with thankful justification then i knew that signore enrico percevali was looking to me for an audience his evening of honour would be a bitter occasion to him if the english were not there to see his performance i hurried to get ready i ran through the rain i knew he would take it badly that it rained on his evening of honour he counted himself a man who had fate against him sono un disgraziato io i was late the first act was nearly over the play was not yet alive neither in the bosoms of the actors nor in the audience i closed the door of the box softly and came forward the rolling italian eyes of hamlet glanced up at me there came a new impulse over the court of denmark enrico looked a sad fool in his melancholy black the doublet sat close making him stout and vulgar the knee breeches seemed to exaggerate the commonness of his thick rather short strutting legs and he carried a long black rag as a cloak for histrionic purposes and he had on his face a portentous grimace of melancholy and philosophic importance his was the caricature of hamlet's melancholy self-absorption i stooped to arrange my footstool and compose my countenance i was trying not to grin for the first time attired in philosophic melancholy of black silk enrico looked a boor and a fool his close-cropped rather animal head was common above the effeminate doublet his sturdy ordinary figure looked absurd in a melancholic droop all the actors alike were out of their element their majesties of denmark were touching the queen burly little peasant woman was ill at ease in her pink satin enrico had had no mercy he knew she loved to be the scolding servant or housekeeper with her head tied up in a handkerchief shrill and vulgar 
yet here she was pranked out in an expanse of satin la regina regina indeed she obediently did her best to be important indeed she rather fancied herself she looked sideways at the audience self-consciously quite ready to be accepted as an imposing and noble person if they would esteem her such her voice sounded hoarse and common but whether it was the pink satin in contrast or a cold i do not know she was almost childishly afraid to move before she began a speech she looked down and kicked her skirt viciously so that she was sure it was under control then she let go she was a burly downright little body of sixty one rather expected her to box hamlet on the ears only she liked being a queen when she sat on the throne there she perched with great satisfaction her train splendidly displayed down the steps she was as proud as a child and she looked like queen victoria of the jubilee period the king her noble consort also had new honours thrust upon him as well as new garments his body was real enough but it had nothing at all to do with his clothes they established a separate identity by themselves but wherever he went they went with him to the confusion of everybody he was a thin rather frail-looking peasant pathetic and very gentle there was something pure and fine about him he was so exceedingly gentle and by natural breeding courteous but he did not feel kingly he acted the part with beautiful simple resignation enrico percevalli had overshot himself in every direction but worst of all in his own he had become a hulking fellow crawling about with his head ducked between his shoulders pecking and poking creeping about after other people sniffing at them setting traps for them absorbed by his own self-important self-consciousness his legs in their black knee-breeches had a crawling slinking look he always carried the black rag of a cloak something for him to twist about as he twisted in his own soul overwhelmed by a sort of inverted perversity i had always felt an aversion from hamlet a creeping unclean thing he seems on the stage whether he is forbes robertson or anybody else his nasty poking and sniffing at his mother his setting traps for the king his conceited perversion with ophelia make him always intolerable the character is repulsive in its conception based on self-dislike and a spirit of disintegration there is i think this strain of cold dislike or self-dislike through much of the renaissance art and through all the later shakespeare in shakespeare it is a kind of corruption in the flesh and a conscious revolt from this a sense of corruption in the flesh makes hamlet frenzied for he will never admit that it is his own flesh leonardo da vinci is the same but leonardo loves the corruption maliciously michelangelo rejects any feeling of corruption he stands by the flesh the flesh only it is the corresponding reaction but in the opposite direction but that is all four hundred years ago enrico percevalli has just reached the position he is hamlet and evidently he has great satisfaction in the part he is the modern italian suspicious isolated self-nauseated laboring in a sense of physical corruption but he will not admit it is in himself he creeps about in self-conceit transforming his own self-loathing with what satisfaction did he reveal corruption corruption in his neighbours he gloated in letting his mother know he had discovered her incest her uncleanness gloated in torturing the incestuous king of all the unclean ones hamlet was the uncleanest but he accused only the others except in the great speeches and there enrico was betrayed hamlet suffered the extremity of physical self-loathing loathing of his own flesh 
the play is the statement of the most significant philosophic position of the renaissance hamlet is far more even than orestes his prototype a mental creature anti-physical anti-sensual the whole drama is the tragedy of the convulsed reaction of the mind from the flesh of the spirit from the self the reaction from the great aristocratic to the great democratic principle an ordinary instinctive man in hamlet's position would either have set about murdering his uncle by reflex action or else would have gone right away there would have been no need for hamlet to murder his mother it would have been sufficient blood vengeance if he had killed his uncle but that is the statement according to the aristocratic principle orestes was in the same position but the same position two thousand years earlier with two thousand years of experience wanting so that the question was not so intricate in him as in hamlet he was not nearly so conscious the whole greek life was based on the idea of the supremacy of the self and the self was always male orestes was his father's child he would be the same whatever mother he had the mother was but the vehicle the soil in which the paternal seed was planted when clytemnestra murdered agamemnon it was as if a common individual murdered god to the greek but agamemnon king and lord was not infallible he was fallible he had sacrificed iphigenia for the sake of glory in war for the fulfilment of the superb idea of self but on the other hand he had made cruel dissension for the sake of the concubines captured in war the paternal flesh was fallible ungodlike it lusted after meaner pursuits than glory war and slain it was not faithful to the highest idea of the self orestes was driven mad by the furies of his mother because of the justice that they represented nevertheless he was in the end exculpated the third play of the trilogy is almost foolish with its prating gods but it means that according to the greek conviction orestes was right and clytemnestra entirely wrong but for all that the infallible king the infallible male self is dead in orestes killed by the furies of clytemnestra he gains his peace of mind after the revulsion from his own physical fallibility but he will never be an unquestioned lord as agamemnon was orestes is left at peace neutralized he is the beginning of non-aristocratic christianity hamlet's father the king is like agamemnon a warrior king but unlike agamemnon he is blameless with regard to gertrude yet gertrude like clytemnestra is the potential murderer of her husband as lady macbeth is murderess as the daughters of lear the women murder the supreme male the ideal self the king and father this is the tragic position shakespeare must dwell upon the woman rejects repudiates the ideal self which the male represents to her the supreme representative king and father is murdered by the wife and the daughters what is the reason hamlet goes mad in a revulsion of rage and nausea yet the women murderers only represent some ultimate judgment in his own soul at the bottom of his own soul hamlet has decided that the self in its supremacy father and king must die it is a suicidal decision for his involuntary soul to have arrived at yet it is inevitable the great religious philosophic tide which has been swelling all through the middle ages had brought him there the question to be or not to be which hamlet puts himself does not mean to live or not to live it is not the simple human being who puts himself the question it is the supreme i king and father to be or not to be king father in the self supreme and the decision is not to be it is the inevitable philosophic conclusion of all the renaissance 
the deepest impulse in man the religious impulse is the desire to be immortal or infinite consummated and this impulse is satisfied in fulfilment of an idea a steady progression in this progression man is satisfied he seems to have reached his goal this infinity this immortality this eternal being with every step nearer which he takes and so according to his idea of fulfillment man establishes the whole order of life if my fulfillment is the fulfillment and establishment of the unknown divine self which i am then i shall proceed in the realizing of the greatest idea of the self the highest conception of the i my order of life will be kingly imperial aristocratic the body politic also will culminate in this divinity of the flesh this body imbued with glory invested with divine power and might the king the emperor in the body politic also i shall desire a king an emperor a tyrant glorious mighty in whom i see myself consummated and fulfilled this is inevitable but during the middle ages struggling within this pagan original transport the transport of the ego was a small dissatisfaction a small contrary desire amid the pomp of kings and popes was the child jesus and the madonna jesus the king gradually dwindled down there was jesus the child helpless at the mercy of all the world and there was jesus crucified the old transport the old fulfillment of the ego the davidian ecstasy the assuming of all power and glory unto the self the becoming infinite through the absorption of all into the ego this gradually became unsatisfactory this was not the infinite this was not immortality this was eternal death this was damnation the monk rose up with his opposite ecstasy the christian ecstasy there was a death to die the flesh the self must die so that the spirit should rise again immortal eternal infinite i am dead unto myself but i live in the infinite the finite me is no more only the infinite the eternal is at the renaissance this great half-truth overcame the other great half-truth the christian infinite reached by a process of abnegation a process of being absorbed dissolved diffused into the great not-self supplanted the old pagan infinite wherein the self like a root threw out branches and radicals which embraced the whole universe became the whole there is only one infinite the world now cried there is the great christian infinite of renunciation and consummation in the not-self the other that old pride is damnation the sin of sins is pride it is the way to total damnation whereas the pagans based their life on pride and according to this new infinite reached through renunciation and dissolving into the others the neighbor man must build up his actual form of life with savonarola and martin luther the living church actually transformed itself for the roman church was still pagan henry the eighth simply said there is no church there is only the state but with shakespeare the transformation had reached the state also the king the father the representative of the consummate self the maximum of all life the symbol of the consummate being the becoming supreme godlike infinite he must perish and pass away this infinite was not infinite this consummation was not consummated all this was fallible false it was rotten corrupt it must go but shakespeare was also the thing itself hence his horror his frenzy his self-loathing the king the emperor is killed in the soul of man the old order of life is over the old tree is dead at the root 
so said shakespeare it was finally enacted in cromwell charles i took up the old position of kingship by divine right like hamlet's father he was blameless otherwise but as representative of the old form of life which mankind now hated with frenzy he must be cut down removed it was a symbolic act the world our world of europe had now really turned swung round to a new goal a new idea the infinite reached through the omission of self god is all that which is not me i am consummate when myself the resistant solid is reduced and diffused into all that which is not me my neighbor my enemy the great otherness then i am perfect and from this belief the world began gradually to form a new state a new body politic in which the self should be removed there should be no king no lords no aristocrats the world continued in its religious belief beyond the french revolution beyond the great movement of shelley and godwin there should be no self that which was supreme was that which was not me the other the governing factor in the state was the idea of the good of others that is the common good and the vital governing idea in the state has been this idea since cromwell before cromwell the idea was for the king because every man saw himself consummated in the king after cromwell the idea was for the good of my neighbor or for the good of the people or for the good of the whole this has been our ruling idea by which we have more or less lived now this has failed now we say that the christian infinite is not infinite we attempted like nietzsche to return back to the old pagan infinite to say that is supreme or we are inclined like the english and the pragmatist to say there is no infinite there is no absolute the only absolute is expediency the only reality is sensation and momentariness but we may say this even act on it a la sanine but we never believe it what is really absolute is the mystic reason which connects both infinites the holy ghost that relates both natures of god if we now wish to make a living state we must build it up to the idea of the holy spirit the supreme relationship we must say the pagan infinite is infinite the christian infinite is infinite these are our two consummations in both of these we are consummated but that which relates them alone is absolute this absolute of the holy ghost we may call truth or justice or right these are partial names indefinite and unsatisfactory unless there be kept the knowledge of the two infinites pagan and christian which they go between when both are there they are like a superb bridge on which one can stand and know the whole world my world the two halves of the universe essere o non essere e chi il punto to be or not to be was the question for hamlet to settle it is no longer our question at least not in the same sense when it is a question of death the fashionable young suicide declares that his self-destruction is the final proof of his own incontrovertible being and as for not being in our public life we have achieved it as much as ever we want to as much as is necessary whilst in private life there is a swing back to paltry selfishness as a creed and in the war there is the position of neutralization and nothingness it is a question of knowing how to be and how not to be for we must fulfil both enrico percevali was detestable with his essere or non essere he whispered it in a hoarse whisper as if it were some melodramatic murder he was about to commit as a matter of fact he knows quite well and has known all his life that his pagan infinite his transport of the flesh and the supremacy of the male in fatherhood is all unsatisfactory 
all his life he has really cringed before the northern infinite of the not-self although he has continued in the italian habit of self but it is mere habit sham how can he know anything about being and not being when he is only a maudlin compromise between them and all he wants is to be a maudlin compromise he is neither one nor the other he has neither being nor not being he is as equivocal as the monks he was detestable mouthing hamlet's sincere words he has still to let go to know what not being is before he can be till he has gone through the christian negation of himself and has known the christian consummation he is a mere amorphous heap for the soliloquies of hamlet are as deep as the soul of man can go in one direction and as sincere as the holy spirit itself in their essence but thank heaven the bog into which hamlet struggled is almost surpassed it is a strange thing if a man covers his face and speaks with his eyes blinded how significant and poignant he becomes the ghost of this hamlet was very simple he was wrapped down to the knees in a great white cloth and over his face was an open-work woolen shawl but the naive blind helplessness and verity of his voice was strangely convincing he seemed the most real thing in the play from the knees downward he was laertes because he had on laertes white trousers and patent leather slippers yet he was strangely real a voice out of the dark the ghost is really one of the play's failures it is so trivial and unspiritual and vulgar and it was spoiled for me from the first when i was a child i went to the tuppany travelling theatre to see hamlet the ghost had on a helmet and a breastplate i sat in pale transport hamlet hamlet i am thy father's ghost then came a voice from the dark silent audience like a cynical knife to my fond soul why the honour i can tell thy voice the peasants loved ophelia she was in white with her hair down her back poor thing she was pathetic demented and no wonder after hamlet's oh that this too too solid flesh would melt what then of her young breasts and her womb hamlet with her was a very disagreeable sight the peasants loved her there was a hoarse roar half of indignation half of roused passion at the end of her scene the graveyard scene too was a great success but i could not bear hamlet and the gravedigger in italian was a mere buffoon the whole scene was farcical to me because the italian questo cranio signore and enrico dainty fellow took the skull in a corner of his black cloak as an italian he would not willingly touch it it was unclean but he looked a fool hulking himself in his lugubriousness he was as self-important as d'annunzio the clothes fell flat the peasants had applauded the whole graveyard scene wildly but at the end of all they got up and crowded to the doors as if to hurry away this in spite of enrico's final feat he fell backwards smack down three steps of the throne platform onto the stage but planks and braced muscle will bounce and signor amleto bounced quite high again it was the end of amleto and i was glad but i loved the theatre i loved to look down on the peasants who were so absorbed at the end of the scenes the men pushed back their black hats and rubbed their hair across their brows with a pleased excited movement and the women stirred in their seats just one man was with his wife and child and he was of the same race as my old woman at san tomaso he was fair thin and clear abstract of the mountains he seemed to have gathered his wife and child together into another finer atmosphere like the air of the mountains and to guard them in it this is the real joseph father of the child 
he has a fierce abstract look wild and untamed as a hawk but like a hawk at its own nest fierce with love he goes out and buys a tiny bottle of lemonade for a penny and the mother and child sip it in tiny sips whilst he bends over like a hawk arching its wings it is the fierce spirit of the ego come out of the primal infinite but detached isolated an aristocrat he is not an italian dark-blooded he is fair keen as steel with the blood of the mountaineer in him he is like my old spinning woman it is curious how with his wife and child he makes a little separate world down there in the theatre like a hawk's nest high and arid under the gleaming sky the bersaglieri sit close together in groups so that there is a strange corporal connection between them they have close-cropped dark slightly bestial heads and thick shoulders and thick brown hands on each other's shoulders when an act is over they pick up their cherished hats and fling on their cloaks and go into the hall they are rather rich the bersaglieri they are like young half-wild oxen such strong sturdy dark lads thickly built and with strange hard heads like young male caryatides they keep close together as if there were some physical instinct connecting them and they are quite womanless there is a curious interabsorption among themselves a sort of physical trance that holds them all and puts their minds to sleep there is a strange hypnotic unanimity among them as they put on their plumed hats and go out together always very close as if their bodies must touch then they feel safe and content in this heavy physical trance they are in love with one another the young men love the young men they shrink from the world beyond from the outsiders from all who are not bersaglieri of their barracks one man is a sort of leader he is very straight and solid solid like a wall with a dark unblemished will his cock feathers slither in a profuse heavy stream from his black oilcloth hat almost to his shoulder he swings round his feathers slip into a cascade then he goes out to the hall his feather tossing and falling richly he must be well off the bersaglieri buy their own black cock's plumes and some pay twenty or thirty francs for the bunch so the maestra said the poor ones have only poor scraggy plumes there is something very primitive about these men they remind me really of agamemnon's soldiers clustered on the seashore men all men a living vigorous physical host of men but there is a pressure on these italian soldiers as if they were men caryatids with a great weight on their heads making their brain hard asleep stunned they all look as if their real brain were stunned as if there were another centre of physical consciousness from which they lived separate from them all is pietro the young man who lounges on the wharf to carry things from the steamer he starts up from sleep like a wildcat as somebody claps him on the shoulder it is the start of a man who has many enemies he is almost an outlaw will he ever find himself in prison he is the gamin of the village well detested he is twenty-four years old thin dark handsome with a cat-like lightness and grace and a certain repulsive gamin evil in his face where everybody is so clean and tidy he is almost ragged his week's beard shows very black in his slightly hollow cheeks he hates the man who has waked him by clapping him on the shoulder pietro is already married yet he behaves as if he were not he has been carrying on with a loose woman the wife of the citron-coloured barber the siciliano then he seats himself on the women's side of the theatre behind a young person from bogliaco who also has no reputation and makes her talk to him 
he leans forward resting his arms on the seat before him stretching his slender cat-like flexible loins the padrona of the hotel hates him ein frecher kerl she says with contempt and she looks away her eyes hate to see him in the village there is the clerical party which is the majority there is the anti-clerical party and there are the ne'er-do-wells the clerical people are dark and pious and cold there is a curious stone-cold ponderous darkness over them moral and gloomy then the anti-clerical party with the syndaco at the head is bourgeois and respectable as far as the middle-aged people are concerned banal respectable shut off as by a wall from the clerical people the young anti-clericals are the young bloods of the place the men who gather every night in the more expensive and less respectable cafe these young men are all free thinkers great dancers singers players of the guitar they are immoral and slightly cynical their leader is the young shopkeeper who has lived in vienna who is a bit of a bounder with the veneer of sneering irony on an original good nature he is well to do and gives dances to which only the looser women go with these reckless young men he also gets up parties of pleasure and is chiefly responsible for the coming of the players to the theatre this carnival these young men are disliked but they belong to the important class they are well to do and they have the life of the village in their hands the clerical peasants are priest-ridden and good because they are poor and afraid and superstitious there is lastly a sprinkling of loose women one who keeps the inn where the soldiers drink these women are a definite set they know what they are they pretend nothing else they are not prostitutes but just loose women they keep to their own clique among men and women never wanting to compromise anybody else and beyond all these there are the franciscan friars in their brown robes so shy so silent so obliterated as they stand back in the shop waiting to buy the bread for the monastery waiting obscure and neutral till no one shall be in the shop wanting to be served the village women speak to them in a curious neutral official slightly contemptuous voice they answer neutral and humble though distinctly at the theatre now the play is over the peasants in their black hats and cloaks crowd the hall only pietro the wharf lounger has no cloak and a bit of a cap on the side of his head instead of a black felt hat his clothes are thin and loose on his thin vigorous cat-like body and he is cold but he takes no notice his hands are always in his pockets his shoulders slightly raised the few women slip away home in the little theatre bar the well-to-do young atheists are having another drink not that they spend much a tumbler of wine or a glass of vermouth costs a penny and the wine is horrible new stuff yet the little baker agostino sits on a bench with his pale baby on his knee putting the wine to its lips and the baby drinks like a blind fledgling upstairs the quality has paid its visits and shaken hands the sindaco and the well-to-do half austrian owners of the woodyard the bertolini have ostentatiously shown their mutual friendship our padrone the signor pietro di paoli has visited his relatives the graziani in the box next to the stage and has spent two intervals with us in our box meanwhile his two peasants standing down below pathetic thin contadini of the old school like worn stones have looked up at us as if we are the angels in heaven with a reverential devotional eye they themselves far away below standing in the bay at the back below all the chemist and the grocer and the schoolmistress pay calls they have all sat self-consciously posed in the front of their boxes like framed photographs of themselves the second grocer and the baker visit each other the barber looks in on the carpenter 
then drops downstairs among the crowd class distinctions are cut very fine as we pass with the padrona of the hotel who is a bavarian we stop to speak to our own padroni the di paoli they have a warm handshake and effusive polite conversation for us for maria samuelli a distant bow we realize our mistake the barber not the siciliano but flashy little luigi with the big tie ring and the curls knows all about the theatre he says that enrico percevalli has for his mistress carina the servant in ghosts that the thin gentle old-looking king in hamlet is the husband of adelaida and carina is their daughter that the old sharp fat little body of a queen is adelaida's mother and that they all like enrico percevalli because he is a very clever man but that the comic il brillante francesco is unsatisfied in three performances in epiphany week the company took two hundred and sixty-five francs which was phenomenal the manager enrico percevalli and adelaida pay twenty-four francs for every performance or every evening on which a performance is given as rent for the theatre including light the company is completely satisfied with its reception on the lago di garda so it is all over the bersaglieri go running all the way home because it is already past half past ten the night is very dark about four miles up the lake the searchlights of the austrian border are swinging looking for smugglers otherwise the darkness is complete end of section four